0: What can we do to fight back against big pharma and the compromised medical industry? We can become healthy and break free from the perpetual cycle of being poisoned by criminal organizations like most pharmaceutical companies. Come check out what may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man C60 Purple Power. The benefits of C60 have been personally outstanding. I use it every day and I feel incredible. I have tons of energy, I sleep great, and I haven't even come down with a cold since I started using C60 over two years ago. You can even get C60 for your pets. Do your own research, click the link in the description, and check out their website. If you order from that link or use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10, you get 10% off your order plus free shipping. What is your health worth to you? Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today my guest is Mark Steves. First, I have a couple of announcements. If you have a business and you want to advertise with us, email me. That's ForbiddenKnowledgeNews at gmail.com. We're doing incredible productions for our affiliates, so definitely come check us out. Our website is ForbiddenKnowledge.news, also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You'll find some of your favorite podcasts from our community there, like Raised by Giants, Inception, Going Down the Rabbit Hole, and many more. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. But Rockfin is where you get our premium content. You also get all the premium content from every amazing creator on Rockfin, and there's tons of them. And you get that all for only $10 a month. You can also create a free account and get access to everyone's free content, including all of our regular shows. You just go to rockfin.com slash FKN Plus to sign up, or just click that link right in the description. Today I want to welcome back to the show Mark Steves. He is an independent thinker, conspiracy sleuther, mystical explorer, and spiritual seeker. He has always questioned the official narrative, whether it was from the classroom, on television, or the world around him. He researches everything and anything that presents itself to his intuition. Mark, welcome back. How you doing?
1: Excellent. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure being here, Chris. How you been?
0: I'm excellent, too, man. I always have a fun when we're having conversations. I had a great time on your show last time. And today, I know we're going to get into some awesome stuff. You sent me an email. And uh, some of the topics that you have here is uh, skull and bones. And uh, it's kind of like a, a you said a synchromistic version of what could be behind this and some other fun projects that you're working on that we'll get into if we have time for sure. Uh, but for the audience that may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself, what led you to start the podcast, and then what led you to start your research into skull and bones?
1: Mm, all right, cool. So Mystic Mark is, is how I refer to myself on my podcast. You don't have to call me that. Uh, my podcast is called My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Uh, and it's, a uh, you know, uh, sort of an embodiment of all of the topics that I've been fascinated with and have been just sort of armchair researching. And now I have the great, you know, Honor and privilege of interviewing people who have spent a lot of time researching a lot of really amazing different things, and even just people like yourself who do similar things, people who experience weird stuff like yourself. And you know, I am no stranger to that world. I've had a few strange experiences, and some of them have led me to uh, research Skull and Bones because I live in Connecticut, not too far away from New Haven, Connecticut, where Skull and Bones is located. So uh, just being a college student, I ran into uh, one person in particular who filled me in on a story that goes all the way back to the 1800s concerning Geronimo and the desecration of his grave by someone that everyone's heard of, Prescott Bush, uh, the grandfather of George W. Bush, and the father of George H.W. Bush. So, you know, this sort of troika of brilliant American uh, people there, right? The Bush clan or dynasty. And they all have made a strong impression on not just American history, but New Haven's history as well. And I found myself in the former home of George H.W. Bush on the day he died. uh, Not too long ago, I think he died at, like a year before the um, whole pandemic situation happened. I think he died in like 2018 and I was just delivering pastries. Like I did every Tuesday morning. I looked down at the newspaper and boom, it says, Hey, uh, George HW Bush passed away today. Former resident of new Haven, 88 Hill house Avenue. And that's exactly where I was. I'm like 88 Hill House <laughs> Avenue. I've been coming here every Tuesday, and I didn't. I never knew that George H. W. Bush used to live in this place. It had become a, a U.S. or I'm sorry, a, a Yale University Economics Department by then. So it just sort of had the probably the outside shell and maybe a little bit of the original decor. Uh, but yeah, that synchronicity, synchronicity among others, sort of snowballed into me eventually starting my podcast. And as you know, once you have a podcast going, it gives you, you know, not just a whole bunch of ideas because you're just constantly talking to other people who are in that flow, that mindset of, you know, discovery and exploration. So yeah, I figured, you know, I've been talking to a lot of different uh, researchers, authors, and even just, you know, people who put together presentations on YouTube. I mean, it's as simple as that. And I, I want to kind of do sort of a, a little bit of all of those things. I don't know how skilled I am at writing, uh, but it's a skill that I'd like to practice and hone in on. So yeah, I'm going to start with, uh, with a couple of things that I mentioned earlier, but when it comes to skull and bones, I think the idea ultimately that we've decided um, myself and Jay Hanahan from the how to kill a sacred cow podcast. He came down to one of the tours I gave of the new Haven area. And he was like, yeah, I think you really have something here, man. You know, he filmed a little bit of it. He's like, we should really put like a full length thing together. Cause his initial intention was to just film some stuff for social media and just be like, Ooh, skull and bones, you know, but as I was giving the tour, he's like, yeah, we really have something here. And I I'm like, well, what could we do? And I had just listened to a really fantastic podcast called Penny Royal, which takes a sort of narrative approach to this sort of information over a course of different episodes in a series. So I think that's eventually gonna sort of become what this project is fleshed out to be, something like that. You know, not you know exactly like Penny Royal. Obviously, we're sort of dealing with a different area of the country, a whole nother set of topics and. Uh, But I do take a lot of inspiration from that show. Um, And, yeah, I think that's a really cool innovation in the podcasting space, you know. Um, So I've been doing stuff like that, just trying to diversify, I guess. (laughs) But also finally have the time to work on some things like this.
0: Well, man, that's a hell of a synchronicity with the whole uh, skull and bones thing. And I can't wait to get into this. And I'm actually going to learn a lot today because I have not done – much research into uh, the actual skull and bones uh, secret society. I've, you know, secret societies in general, sure, but I don't really know much about this particular uh, group and, you know, the history and how it's connected to some of the things that you're going to talk about tonight. So like I said, I'm stoked. I'm ready to learn some stuff. Uh, so for the audience that may not be familiar with uh, the skull and bone society, could you just explain maybe a little bit brief history about them and, um, uh, you know, what, where they are, uh, up until now.
1: Yeah. So skull and bones was founded in 1832 by two gentlemen, uh, one Alfonso Taft and another William, uh, Huntington Russell. And after their sort of post junior year trips abroad, uh, studying in Germany after they had spent the first three years of their college time, um, studying at Yale, of course, They came back to Yale University for their senior year, and the assumption is that they joined something in Germany which inspired a Skull and Bones chapter number two at Yale University. So the alleged story, and this is pieced together by people like Anthony Sutton, who I recommend his books on Skull and Bones. He's done a lot of groundbreaking research into Skull and Bones. But that's where it starts. And you got to keep in mind that at that period in American history, we had just had the Morgan affair, the, the crisis that created America's first third political party, which is the uh, anti-Mason party, right? So this muckraking journalism of, oh, the Freemasons are the worst, they're the evil, whether that's true or not, whichever stance you take on that. What happened because of that was a lot of these groups went underground or forfeited their secrecy. So we had the beginning of groups like Phi Beta Kappa or Delta uh, Epsilon, whatever. All of these sort of fraternal organizations that made their way into the college system became what they were around this time because initially secret societies were fashionable. So secret societies were a part of mimicking the greek system right the greek system of learning the mystery schools as universities were created they had these mystery schools that came up to initiate those who were maybe better suited for the uh esoteric information than the average farm farmer's son or you know ship captain's daughter right so this is the kind of America, they were creating very slowly but surely, separating the elite from the laymen, right? And you see that happen in the universities with this secret society model, which shifts after the Masonic crisis, for lack of a better word. And they all go underground, or like I said, become public organizations. Hence, we have groups like the Shriners today, or the Elks Lodge, or the Lions Club. So a lot of these groups you know, sort of find their uh, history rooted at this moment in time where groups had to make a decision, do we go underground or do we go public? And even the ones that went public still maintained a level of secrecy, which lent itself to further on in history. I mean, this is all pre-Civil War. You got to keep in mind, Skull and Bones was created pre-Civil War. So America was an entirely different place back then. And we were fighting battles on the Western Front. We were fighting the Native Americans when Skull and Bones was founded. The founder of Skull and Bones, William Russell, went on to found the National Guard in Connecticut, the first National Guard here in Connecticut. So they've had a military, excuse me. They've had a heavy military association from the beginning, not to mention uh, this summer abroad that was spent in Germany was spent at the University of Berlin, where a certain philosopher named Hegel was very prominent. He was very inspirational. And Hegelian dialect is something that people in the conspiracy community, they might be familiar with that phrase. It's the concept of problem, reaction, solution. You create the problem to foment the reaction and then impose a preordained solution. This was born in the Hegelian school of thought, which was very much influenced by the Austrian Prussian war. I mean, Switzerland as well has this sort of same uh, milieu going on. So these are the influences at play. They're coming into what is ostensibly a very Protestant organization, right? New Haven was founded by not just Protestants, but Puritans, like very devout, non-Catholic Christians, right? And they were also believers in the book of Revelations to a T. They even built New Haven's city square so that it was laid out in nine squares and the center square had enough room to fit exactly 144,000 people, just like it says in the book of Revelation. So we see laid into the foundation of New Haven, this apocalyptic idea, this very sort of, I mean, New Haven, New Heaven, right? This is a, not a coincidence either. Um, so this is a perfect uh, incubator for a group like Skull and Bones. You know, they came in there to Yale University, a, a university that was you know, Christianizing the savage, right? Because we have, like I said, these wars going on on the Western front. Well, that war started on the East Coast and made its way across the West. And groups like Yale University were a part of this movement to create the new Atlantis. And in order to create the new Atlantis, they had to dissuade future inhabitants of knowing a history that is anything but their creation, right? So their alternate timeline that they created when they landed, Christopher Columbus, this whole mythos, the first Thanksgiving, this is how we see, you know, this sort of mental virus spreading across America. And it starts with groups like Harvard University. It starts with groups like Yale University and the people that were in power positions at the time of the founding of these two schools. And from those two schools, we have the establishment of every other Ivy League school from Dartmouth to Cornell to Princeton. And it's no coincidence that most of them, aside from Dartmouth and Cornell, are all situated on the same ancient indigenous ley line, the Akkadian ley line, which I know you've spoken to Peter Shampoo, so you might be familiar with his work in the Akkadian ley line there. So what I'm supposing, what I'm suspicious of is that there's a sort of carryover from the old world of this concept of building a new Rome or, or, you know, conquering the pagans, right? You have to, in order to conquer the pagans, you have to build the new religious site on the old religious site. right? So this is what happened here in the United States. They took the mounds, they gridded them, they destroyed them, a la Ras Ben's work. Uh, and where I'm sort of going with this research is, I think maybe Harvard and Yale and, and these groups sort of created the societies that did those practices, the Smithsonian's You know, these museum groups that went and collected all of these artifacts and they're using those sacred objects to take the ancient spiritual ancestral inheritance away from the red man and supplant it. Right. And we have the largest concentration of petroglyphs on the East Coast in the Susquehanna River where I was uh, just this past weekend. And one thing that really shocked me going there, and I didn't see the petroglyphs this time, I do plan on visiting them one day, but we went to the Susquehanna and we met with somebody who has visited the petroglyphs several times. And the story he told is that the petroglyphs on the Susquehanna River have multiple different cultures. They have Asian cultures, they have African cultures, they have indigenous American cultures writings in this stone in this piece of granite that's in this ancient river and take this story for what it's worth it came from somebody who identifies as a leftist so would prepare people might get offended but according to this story the white race didn't show up they never showed up to this petroglyph site when the ancient meeting place you know so whatever that's worth mythologically or symbolically. Um, it's no coincidence that this site is not recognized by archeologists. They don't recognize it as the largest concentration of petroglyphs east of the Mississippi. They don't want people to know how advanced the native cultures were on the East coast. So this is part of what, uh, you know, the university system has helped to do. But I think as time grew and their organizations grew, they took some of their more arcane and less you know, public things that they did and they put them underground and delegated them to groups like Skull and Bones. And we have newspaper articles that I've come across when using archive.org um, that talk about not just Geronimo's skull getting taken back to Skull and Bones, but other historical figures like the Apache Kid, who was another outlaw uh, who, you know, probably gave the uh, US army a hurtin and they had a big bounty on his head and these chicago businessmen went down on a hunting party and they happened to run across him realized he was an outlaw and they snuck up on him at night and killed him and then they sent his skull and femur bones to Yale University and this is in like the 1850s this isn't very uh short after you know or it's not very long after skull and bones has started so it seems that something is going on it's not just native uh american people that have their skulls in in the tomb at skull and bones in new haven on high street martin van buren who allegedly is the only president who's not related uh genealogically to the other presidents uh he's the guy who created the phrase okay which i think <laughs> people use that phrase every day and they probably don't know where it comes from but that came from him okay uh and then there's also um, someone named the Russian lady who has a bar named after her here in New Haven, not to mention Geronimo also has a bar named after him in New Haven, a bar called Geronimo's, of course. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on. I don't know uh, if there's a complete list out there anywhere, but, it, you know, the legends, the myths are there are multiple important figures from American history whose skulls now reside in the tomb. So why are they collecting these skulls? You know, what sort of occult practices would maybe detail something like this? You know, do we have historical evidence for other groups using similar, you know, things like using skulls for this similar things? And I found, yes, there are, but maybe before I keep going on, let you ask a question or two
0: no that's uh that's super fascinating. It makes me wonder about the the how close a relationship say Yale and some of these universities have with uh, institutions like the Smithsonian who have been known to have uh, covered up certain instances and uh evidence about indigenous people from our history, and not only that you know the giants and and other things that they have completely rewritten
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we have uh, three figures. Daniel Gilman, who started John Hopkins University, he started the university. And when I say started, um, I should say he was the first president because there are multiple people that go into creating an organization like that. Uh, So he was the first president of John Hopkins University, the first president of the University of California. Uh, His peer, his fellow graduate, uh, Andrew White, was the founder of the Peabody Society, among a bunch of others. I mean, too many for me to recall. But these guys that graduated from Yale and, and specifically Skull and Bones between the years of 1840 through the 1940s, I mean, these were the movers and shakers. They controlled everything. We're talking about You know, not just the military, we're talking about the oil industry. You know, we're talking about all of the East Coast connected families sending their children through Skull and Bones. And Skull and Bones is just one. I mean, there's nine secret societies within Yale. There's also its mirrored organization. You have Skull and Bones, S and B, right? Well, you also have B and S, Book and Snake. So, Book and Snake is on the opposite side of the High Street. So, we have the beginning of High Street which starts at the Native American Cultural Center. You go past down, down past the Starbucks, past the art museum. It's a one-way street. And on your left, you'll see High Street. You'll see the tomb, right? And then you keep going and the road ends. You have to take a right turn onto another one-way street. But there's a walking path that continues. And it goes past Yale's Law School. It goes past the Book and Snake um, tomb, which there are... Several tombs in New Haven. They're classified as tombs because they don't have windows. They're buildings without windows. Um, so they have sort of like slits to let light in, but they don't have traditional windows. And at the end of this street that Skull and Bones' tomb is situated on is the uh, first cemetery in America. So, sure, there were burying grounds for sure, there were like places where people were buried, but this was the first official cemetery with a paved sort of path. It was like the idea was that they were creating a garden of the dead, right? There would be trees, there would be plants, there would be a path for people to walk, and every plot would have its own person buried in it, as opposed to before where they were saving space and burying people on top of each other, burying families together. This New Haven Cemetery was the first of its kind in America to be sort of like a Elite cemetery, right? You know, you'd have like very wealthy people spending exuberant amounts of money on their gravestones. And to this day, you know, it has some really strange crypts and tombs and obelisks dotting the uh, different grave plots. And this is right at the end of the road from Skull and Bones. And we're told that Yale University has a tunnel system. So my thought has always been maybe they're using these tombs to enter into the tunnel and then they walk around the tunnels under the street. I don't know. haven't gone that far yet. I haven't gone spelunking under New Haven, but it just feels to me like when you see this nine square grid, the way it's laid out, and I'll show you a screenshot uh, or screen share if you'll allow me to um, because it's really fascinating and it brings to mind a sort of type of sigil number magic. Have you ever seen the magic square? Um, So a magic square, when you put the numerals one through nine in it, no matter how you slice it, it'll always equal the same sum. And this sum happens to be 15. Well, some people have said that 15 is supposed to be connected to Saturn. One plus five equals six. We have uh, multiple sort of layers of three. Three times six, 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 six. So I'm not exactly an expert or, uh, you know, someone who goes too deeply on Gematria, but this is there for somebody to decipher themselves. Um, Also, you see this placement of the numbers. This wouldn't make sense, right? We're, We're looking at a map that is oriented west on the top side of the map, right? In old times, they wouldn't orient them like we do today with the north being on the top, they'd orient it with the west being on the top, right? So this is looking at New Haven from a sort of odd view, a sort of side view, I guess. Um, And you would think that they would put the numbers in it 123456789 if that's all it was, if it was just a grid meant to designate different parts of the city. Why would the numbers be all over the place like this if it's not a sigil? And there's evidence of this because the only square in New Haven to this day that has a name is ninth square. And it's right here, which would be counterintuitive if you were just numbering them in numerical order. You wouldn't put the nine there, you'd put it in a corner because that's where the number sequence ends. So that's where I think some sort of sigil magic is going on. And The guy who laid out John uh, or laid out New Haven's um, nine square grid was named John Brockett. He was educated at Cambridge. He's related to a royal knight. He was a Connecticut uh, General Assembly representative, and he also helped settle disputes between Indians and uh, settlers. So not to mention he was a surgeon as well, which in those days was synonymous with the shaman. Right. So like what we would consider a shaman, what we would consider a witch doctor, a medicine man. uh, It's the same thing as like a folk healer. They were all doing uh, very similar things. And I mean, is it a coincidence that Yale University and Harvard have huge medical schools? You know, I mean, they come to this new world, they absorb all the native consciousness's knowledge of plants, and then they go and boil them down, alchemica, alchemize, you know, these plants and turn them into like little pills, you know, right. and, and hook people on drugs. And not to mention like the actual drug angle that Yale university was founded and named after a guy named Eli Yale, Elahu Yale, who is a member of the Dutch East India company, a governor of the Dutch East India company, a very wealthy guy. And that's Drug trafficking right there. Those guys were going to China, getting opium and bringing it back to Europe and America. So...
0: Man, I love this research. It it goes back to uh, to to kind of prove the notion that our forefathers were deeply involved in um, occult rituals, magic. They had uh, advanced knowledge of things like ley lines and energies mm. and sigil magic. And uh, you know, again, how deeply involved uh, were our forefathers? And you you know, we have arguments. Was it for was it nefarious? Was it for control, mind control? and enslavement of the race or did they have a different idea in mind um what do you think about that
1: well i think they were they were trying to carve out a new atlantis i think they had a lot of information going back thousands of years about what the new world was and they just gave us this impression that it was new you know we still call it the new world versus the old world and really i mean. Ancient history here goes back just as far as it does anywhere else on the planet. Uh, you know, if you look at the megaliths, the petroglyphs—I mean—and and you start to date some of the archaeological finds that they have here on the North American continent, it's pretty obvious that people have been living in North America for a really long time. And South America seems even longer—they were living there, which is counterintuitive because we're told that they all traveled over the Bering Strait, which Uh, So many alternative researchers above my pedigree have pointed out, you know, fallacies to that narrative. So, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable assuming and supposing that the English, the Dutch, the Spanish, they all knew what was going on in the new world and formulated a plan. You know, we have this story uh, of the Spanish sort of coming on a very auspicious day and wearing feathers and, you know, The people there who they came up to, I can't remember whether it was the Aztec or the Maya, but they saw these people and they thought, oh, these are our gods. Look, they have metal scaly heads and feathers coming out. This is the plume serpent, you know? And I just, I feel like, you know, that's too strange to be a coincidence. Whoever, Cortez, I think it was. He knew what he was doing when he put those feathers in his helmet. They knew to do that. They knew to dress a certain way uh, because they were looking for gold. And, and I don't think gold is strictly um, of monetary value. I think it has a very clear technological value. Even in like our modern age, we're told that gold does really amazing things uh, in space. Crafts and whatnot, if you believe in space. I don't know. I just thought that was strange considering all the ancient alien stuff we hear about, right? And then we have all yeah. this gold in South America. So they knew about the situation in South and North America. Uh, there were Norse trades that went on, you know, the Iroquois Confederation, the Algonquin Confederation up in the Northeast. They had similar uh, dialects as the people who lived in Scandinavia and Ireland. So all this evidence that the old world and the new world have been connected way before 1492 right i think that's really why they did this you know they had to rewrite history in order to justify it legally in order to justify it with god uh and and whatever that means to them because i'm not a, a christian in the same way like francis bacon or or like the jamestown settlers or the you know, Massachusetts Plymouth Bay settlers, like they were a totally different type of spirituality than I am in the sense that we have a more modern, universal, sort of overarching kind of broad picture of many different spiritualities. They, they didn't have as many. So when they came here, they had a very biased opinion of uh, what the native consciousness was and what they were doing. And That made for a lot of tragedy and conflict. And, you know, there's no reconciling that. I I don't want to become an apologist or even like a heroicist making the Native Americans out to be more than they were. I'm really just trying to see what the truth is so we can raise the awareness of this new Atlantis plan and take it away from those who are trying to anchor it in in low vibration and, and we can anchor it in a higher more resonant, organic in the sense that it's cohesive with the, the natural world. I think that's how the natural world normally works is a sort of suffering that creates growth. So it's like these bad guys create this really bad system to enslave us all. And then the good guys come and flip that system upside down. And the system actually ends up helping everybody for some time and then the bad guys take it over again but hey nothing's new under the sun right it's a a constant cycle
0: check out our friends at Linquistity Gifts Linquistity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets signature and zodiac designed and made in the United States as well as raw and polished stones crystal balls pendulums tarot cards natural crystal points wands and so much more their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity balance focus and well-being they can even customize the bracelets for you just send them an email to find out pricing and availability visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code fkn to get 10% off your first order over $20 And right now, they are offering $5 off the purchase of two or more bracelets. Linkwistitygifts.com Yes, it, it does seem to be cyclical in that manner. Um, I want to go back to the kind of secret anatomy of certain cities and places uh, that seem to have certain mystical properties about them. Uh, I've come to learn through many different researchers that are, there are many cities across uh, just the United States that have these this kind of secret anatomy, this Masonic Build and all these secret symbolisms throughout the streets, throughout the monuments, throughout the buildings. It's all interconnected in some way. Probably have underground shit going on there that we don't know about. Uh, But they definitely knew how to take advantage of the layout of certain cities to where it could have magical properties, right? Mm,
1: Right. Yeah, and and I love that you use that phrase hidden anatomy of a city. I had never phrased it that way. That's a really brilliant way to put it um
0: well I, I actually stole that from my friend robert homrich who wrote a book about the uh, hidden anatomy of washington dc and mm. all the symbolism there so i can't take credit for that but thank you but yeah oh, he, um, he was just recently on we're talking about that too but uh it was a, br- a brilliant presentation about all the this, the occult symbolism uh and all the connections between the layout of everything in washington dc is very fascinating and i'm sure this applies to many cities across the united states
1: undoubtedly and I appreciate you bringing that to my attention I'm going to check that interview out um, and I hope people listening do too because it's not it's actually very much connected I mean Washington DC is on that Cadian lay people wonder why it's sort of oriented as a diamond instead of just like a flat out square north south I think that points to that same thing we were touching on earlier with like maps used to be oriented differently But I've also seen Peter Shampoo's work, and it looks like that Acadian Lay just goes right through the middle of the square, straight through the square, dividing it in two equal halves. So maybe they're orienting it that way. Uh, In New Haven, there is uh, a tall building. I think it's a banking building, like Key Bank has their bank in there now, and they have their logo on the side, but it hasn't always been theirs. And on top of it is an exact replica of the three pyramids at Teotihuacan, right? You have these three pyramids next to each other. Well, on the roof of this building, overlooking the New Haven green that I described earlier has enough room for 144,000 souls to be you know, saved in the, the last coming. Uh, right above it is this rooftop, which has you know, just straight up three pyramids, I mean, you can't miss it when you look at it. Uh, and I've never really made the connection until Peter pointed it out because he's been on this ley line stuff for a long time. But one thing I've always wondered about with New Haven, and I'll share my screen again and show you one more thing, um, is there are these interesting like walking paths in New Haven on the uh, green. And they're sort of shaped like pentagrams. So I was wondering like, oh, is this a pentagram? you know, skull and bones, satanic, you know, yada, yada. But I, I, as much as they look like pentagrams, I'm almost wondering now if in the same way that the whole city is a nine square grid like this, maybe the sigil is using those paths to, to connect different values that each square has. Right. So they're sort of like tracing it across the center area And making a larger pattern that you can kind of like put over the walking paths and be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Kind of like fitting in a a puzzle piece, right? I mean, it's not as easy to see in this picture because of the trees, but you can kind of see there. the, The paths go all the way across the park on both sides. And on the other side of the park is three churches that have been there since pretty much the beginning of the settlement and at its founding, New Haven was the wealthiest colony to that date in America to be founded. So it's always had a sort of elite air to it. Um, and then not to mention this third church right here, the Trinity Church. This is a crypt. The whole of the green has bodies buried underneath it. And underneath this church, they preserved the original cemetery floor because you know they kept adding dirt adding dirt to the green and raising it. And uh, and now <laughs> recently there was a hurricane and a tree was taken over and a skeleton was brought up from the roots of the tree as it was knocked over. So that, that gives you an idea. There's, I think they wrote, there's like 6,000 bodies estimated to be buried underneath the green. And you might've seen in that picture in the lower right-hand corner, like they do music festivals all summer on that green and my girlfriend Tara, before we started dating, she actually had like a vision on the green, um, which we talk about a little bit in this project I'm working on. But yeah, it's it's really strange, man. Like I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that they build places like this with dead bodies underneath it. They're using their souls to like fuel the energy somehow, like a necromantic
0: temple, you know. Man, that is crazy. Man, uh I wanna go back to the uh, actual skull and bones and other fraterners he's in general. Um mm. they they obviously seem to not only attract a certain type of individual, mostly uh, psychopathic, but uh, they seem to, you know, probably breed people for uh, multi-generational attendance for these uh, major secret societies. I'm sure that there's people that are born into families that know that they're just going to be in one of these fraternities when they get to a certain age, they're going to be doing this when they get to a certain age, and they're going to be, you know, in this elite position. Uh, So it's a multi-generational type of Thing that's been going on forever. And I wonder, you know, there's there's people going through these fraternities and coming out of them every day. They're spitting out new little psychopaths every day that are going to be in different institutions, different in things like politics uh, into uh, Silicon Valley and the technical world and different corporations, pharmaceuticals. So they're still pumping out these guys every day from these secret societies. And I'm sure the ideologies that they've been teaching these guys – hasn't changed much since like the the bush days you know
1: mm. well yeah it definitely has that like puritanical vibe of like you know we are the saved ones and everyone else is damned to you know hellfire <laughs> it's like this really interesting uh almost evangelical i'm not totally up on all of the correct terms uh in christianity i'm i'm slowly learning The nuances and the differences but if my understanding is correct new haven was founded with this hyper calvinist energy which is like uh it's a form of calvinism but it's like super focused on like really just like feeling ashamed of eternal sin right original sin and like everything like you're so screwed you know you have to make every day of your life about appeasing god and like But it it sort of creates this reverse psychology where people are like, well, if I'm so evil already, I'm just going to be evil and I'll make up for it tomorrow on Sunday kind of thing, like sinner today, saint tomorrow, you know, and you even have this image on the building in New Haven itself, this like juxtaposition on the Yale law school. There's a man clutching a Bible sort of hunched over and like you could see nothing next to him. He's just dressed plain and clutching a Bible with like all his strength. And then to his back is another figure hunched over holding a drink that says like XXX. He has like a smoking pipe on his boot. He's got like gambling cards on his lap. He's got like a skull next to his shoulder, like really strange iconography to be on law school, let alone the law school that both Bill and Hillary Clinton graduated from. Um, But yeah, so it's, it's sort of like, the yin yang of the city to me. Like, they're encouraging this, like, depravity while also chastising it through their, like, elite law school.
0: I wonder how much of that is, like, just a front to say that they're, uh, they have this kind of religious backing or spiritual backing when it's all just bullshit. They, they, they portray it a certain way when, uh, behind closed doors, they don't believe any of it and they're, you know, doing butt stuff and satanic rituals.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, or a wolf in priest clothing, you know, and I think that that was sort of something I learned a little bit about on my weekend in Lancaster County, like the Amish learning about how you know, they're very strict about their lifestyle, but they also have these loopholes. They got telephones that they use, you know that? They got these like Amish telephones now, and they're like, you know, they're in a box, so they can't like, I don't know, like there's all these like rules with their tech, like they can't have wires exposed or something that gets a loophole around so they could use the telephone, but they can't use electricity. It's, It's such a weird, but that's that's the level that we're talking about here of like you know uh, rules for we and not the or or sort of even kind of like playing with the uh, fluidity of your own beliefs while presenting a very rigid set of beliefs. Like the Amish have charms, they do powwow magic, they have. Uh, You know all kinds of curses that I'm sure they cast on their enemies. So like they're not exactly like the most pure, like pure to the book type Christians. They're very occult. You know I have a book that Michael Wan gave me, uh, Witchcraft in America: The Realness of Witchcraft in America, and it focuses on the uh, sort of Amish powwow hex magic that they have in in Pennsylvania. Sort of a privilege. Mike hooked me up with a bunch of books on my trip to see them. Uh, but yeah, that was a, that's sort of along the same lines. And, and those people that settled the Amish country, they were Germans. They were very strict, very similar to the people that founded the New Haven colony. And, you know, it's like a time capsule, like they've sort of existed a similar way for a long time. I mean, like I said, they have the telephone loophole and all this other stuff now that makes them a little more modern. But yeah, I did feel like uh, it was no accident that I ended up there. I mean, I didn't really plan on going to Lancaster County for any other reason than to visit Michael Wan. Uh, But yeah, going there, synchronistically, I learned things that are fitting into my skull and bones research. And that's just bound to happen. You know, anybody listening to this, when you go and look into the weird hidden history of your own backyard, you're going to find strange stuff and you're going to find parallels to that in other places, which is why, you know, listening to me talk about this might excite something in you or whoever's listening. I know you're going on a a hell of a trip. I don't know if you've already left or you've done some filming
0: first, but uh, we're getting, we're getting started.
1: Right on. Well, cool. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, something that you're going to see for sure. Like the, the synchronicity of the road and, and finding yourself in places that maybe you weren't aware of had this occult energy.
0: Yeah, man, that's it's so crazy. I'm sure uh, any visit with Michael Wan is going to bring tons of synchronicities. Uh, I love Michael and I love the, the work he's doing as well. So what is it? Exactly. That did bring you to to Amish country and to to visit there.
1: Well, Mike is staying at a place called Nome Countryside. It has an Airbnb within it. So people listening, if you want to go and taste it yourself and and get out and like experience this, it's not hard at all. Just go for it. Um, I actually put the Airbnb link in the episode description of the show Mike and I do together called Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. But that's what brought us there. Him and I co-host a show together and it consists of phone calls between him and I Uh, using my mixer. I'll call him up and he'll either be like hiking or driving or just like walking around, talking on the phone. And and that's our podcast. For him, it's kind of like a a relief because as much as he enjoys being on podcasts, over and over and over again, being in front of a computer sort of drained him a little bit. So like the less Zoom meetings, the better kind of thing. So our podcast has like a different feeling to it. It's not always the most polished because it is a phone call, but, you know, just talking to him every week, we kind of built this like synchronistic rapport as you do with friends, like things start happening in your life and their life and you sort of come together Uh, and that's exactly what happened on this trip. We drove down there and, um, we went to get coffee and I said, let's do, you know, some randomness. Let's, let's pick where we're going to go, but let's be random. Let's not like, think about it. Let's just let it come to us. Right. So Mike was initially inspired, uh, by that and was like, I got an idea. Let me look at your charts. So, we, he looks at our charts and we're kind of sitting there. And then he's like, okay, take a, a thing out of a bag. He's got like this really awesome. And I would love for him to describe this. So I don't want to talk about it too much, but the starboard that he has, he's now uh, going to be very soon selling smaller, like a, your own version of a starboard. So you can buy your own starboard. So he gave us the, the game pieces and we're kind of like fiddling around and pulling one out. Game piece might not be the best term for it, but we pulled one out that had a Saturn symbol and one out that had a Neptune symbol. And Mike did some like astrological calculations and was like, let's go to the Serpentine Barrens. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we drove to the Serpentine Barrens. And I mean, if you don't know what Serpentine Barrens are, they're very strange places uh, where the geology is all this certain type of stone called serpentine, which makes for only certain types of plants being able to grow there. And in the East Coast, we have a bunch of pretty much like lush, like woodlands, like a lot of like weeds. And like, especially this time of year, the overgrowth is like thick, you know? But here it was like grassy, you know, sparse trees. Probably looks like, like Texas a little bit, like Eastern Texas, the way it's kind of like, Scrabland, land, scab land kind of, uh, I don't know the right term for it, but we end up in this like weird, strange place, lightning storms, like on the horizon. And then I get a strange message on Instagram. That's like somebody trying to channel us about this, like goddess <laughs> named talk. And I'm like, huh? You know, and, like, I'm not doing the story justice, but all these things like came together in this way. And, uh, once Mike and I get on the podcast, we'll probably break it down one by one, but yeah, just exploring and like having, a uh, an experience in the, you know, outside of the frames of conventional time. Cause so many people like they go out and they schedule their day, like a, B, C, D, E, then we're going to do this. We're going to eat. Like we really like we're as unprepared and unorganized as possible we had a great time and we made it back to the truck before it started downpouring just in time uh, we went down to this part of the susquehanna river where they have all these big rock islands that you can kind of like jump along it's just you know might take a little more reflecting because i just got back last night yeah. uh, before i have like sort of like a silver lining to the trip but yeah so far it you know, that's that's what stands out. And I got to speak to an Amish person for a little bit, which was cool. Uh, he came by on his horse and buggy and asked me where I was from.
0: <laughs> Sweet. Man. Yeah. Uh, it's the Amish that do the the Rumspringer thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The Amish is like a sort of, um, it's like a, I don't think they consider themselves, they don't call themselves that name. They call themselves Mennonites. And there's a mm. bunch of different types of Mennonites, I think uh there might be other groups that are similar to the Mennonites that don't go by that word but uh, yeah they're 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 the same ones that do the rumspringa and i'm almost certain that like like to the point about the telephone like they do some wild stuff like some <laughs> of them do rumspringa and never come back like they just become like normal american citizens or they become like homeless drug addicts which uh. is Kind of sad, but yeah, there was some kind of documentary about that that I saw I need to watch a few that. years ago. I heard about yeah. it. Yeah. Man, yeah. That's... I don't know too much about that, but they did seem like, like Mike Juan said, they're like cats. Like you got to be, you know, they're friendly, they'll wave, but you could scare them off real easily. <laughs>
0: man that is crazy it's like a whole different type of uh world when you're interacting with that stuff uh Mm. now before we move on to some of the other stuff you're working on uh any any other interesting tidbits that you found out about skull and bones or anything else you'd like to share about that
1: yeah and i mean what we just kind of talked about is a little bit about about what uh i'm doing with the scene so if you want we can go back to um the skull and bones stuff or we could stay on the scene but the skull and bones yeah there i mean there's a lot there's so much that i couldn't spend more than one or two episodes talking about it's going to be a whole series uh probably be an entirely separate podcast from my family thinks i'm crazy and so far we've already had a couple really interesting guests that we've interviewed troy mclaughlin has added some of his research to the project um my friend donut uh, he's got a really cool YouTube channel, Donut. Hit us with some skull and bone symbolism in pop culture. So we're starting off, you know, one by one. And and it is going to be a visual documentary too. So there's going to be like a podcast and a video uh, documentary that goes with it. So high hopes, big plans, but I think Jay and I can accomplish it. And uh, And yeah, I mean... I've done a couple of interviews like this one on the topic. So so far, I mean, there's a, so much information that I've sort of spit out about this that we're going to kind of compile it into a narrative and and weave it into uh, something that won't be your traditional take on skull and bones. It'll it'll really sort of highlight a secret side of colonial history that has a, a, a you know grip on the institutions that we think of as modern today and they're really not i mean they're they're superstitious and and you know uh, megalomania me- megalomaniacal <laughs> that's, that's the word i've been yeah. thinking of well you I think at its this.
0: core like organizations like skull and bones and fraternities that are actually around still today uh do you think that they still carry around some of these old ideologies at their heart and like i was saying earlier kind of turning out these same type of individuals because they kept holding on to this
1: mm. yeah i think people are at mass initiated now and what happens is the majority of us go through life not you and i most likely not the people who tune into this podcast But the majority of human beings, at least in America and the Western world, go through life in a sort of sleeping initiation. They've been initiated into these esoteric ideas that they're asleep to. They're not aware of them, but they respond unconsciously to them. And joining an organization like Skull and Bones, joining an organization like the Masons, or walking your own path and coming up to a place like this where you know we're listening to this Podcast, or you and I were participating in this podcast, right? Like these are ways to wake up. So I think when they've created the situation where most people are asleep, it gives groups like Skull and Bones a tremendous power because if you're the one who's responsible for waking someone up, that person will give you their loyalty, right? And I think that's what is kind of like with the podcasting. Like we're all in this community together because we see the world for what it is. We might not all agree on what we're seeing, but for the most part, people who listen to these conspiracy podcasts, like we're kind of initiated into a thing too. Like most, the average person listens to a podcast like this and they don't really have any like context to grab to. Like, they're like, what's going on? What are these people talking about? They sound paranoid, you know? And, and, and maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, you know, maybe they're not ready for the information yet, but I think that's kind of what's going on is, is that, They give people a sort of esteem that makes them feel better than other people, especially going to a a school like Yale University or Harvard University or Cambridge or Oxford. I mean, the age of these schools, the prestige, the wealth, the layout, right? The secret anatomy. I mean, these things are, are palpable when you're walking in the city, not to mention it's the elm city, which the elm tree has its own. Occult significance. It's also related to the planet Saturn. Um, So yeah, I think they they definitely create a sort of atmosphere that lends to uh, hierarchy that resembles the pyramid, and that's their symbol for a reason. You know, this pyramidal consciousness. Um, I, for one, I think all of us should be. In a circular consciousness, a whole equal consciousness, you know, people holding hands in a full circle, not, you know, one man on top standing on the shoulders of everyone else, right? So, this is how they maintain that, keeping people asleep. And they need pawns, they need people to take their place when they die. So, they use groups like Skull and Bones to maintain this elite hierarchy, you know, and I've known about the elite hierarchy but I'm not saying it's only Skull and Bones. You know what I mean like again we're sort of in this stupor this sleep and we recognize things like oh there's an elite agenda and people want to get into these camps of like oh but it's this group and only this group. And what I hope to show with Skull and Bones is and this project is that it's not one group or another group it's the system itself. It's the society itself that creates this atmosphere, this, um, you know, momentum of energy that goes in a certain direction. And all they have to do is set the wheels in motion and they end up on the upswing and everyone else ends up on the downward spiral. And thanks to podcasts like yours and the one I do, I hope people can begin to spiral upwards, you know, and spiral out of that downward spiral and and into a sort of higher state of awareness and a higher state of consciousness
0: man i think yeah, that that's exactly what's happening with people right now um There are so many wonderful podcasts that I'm listening to now that didn't even exist a couple years ago. So many people talking about this stuff and building their own new systems. Hell, building their own farms, their own businesses, their own forms of entertainment. So uh, people are starting their, like, a a new society under the the crumbling one that we have. Uh, So it gives me hope that a lot of people are indeed awakening. And we may even be the majority uh, of, of individuals that are on the Right side of history. So that makes me uh, happy as well. Uh, let's talk about another project you got going on. It's like uh, you have a travel guide or something, right?
1: Yeah. So what I did driving down to Lancaster was sort of like an experiment. You know, I, I've only been able to navigate uh, this far for only five or six years. I mean, I've been driving since I was 18, but most of the cars I had up until I was 25 couldn't make it out of my own town let alone the state like i was driving junker cars and you know once i got a car that could actually make it out of state i was like whoa this freedom is exhilarating where do i go though like what do i do and i ended up finding places synchronistically cuz I, I my goal was to just keep driving cuz i didn't want to be home i didn't want you know, i lived at my dad's place back then so as much time as i could spend away from home Get back home when he was sleeping. You know, if I had like a day off from work or something, I would not spend the day at home. I would get in the car, drive, listen to podcasts, and then come back when he was asleep just because it's just the way my dad and I had our, our relationship at that point in time and not a very good one, more of a contentious one. Right. So, escapism, sure. But I'm, I'm exploring and I'm, I'm dealing with some like really deep emotions. I'm dealing with like, What am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, like I don't have a, a, you know, savings. I don't have investment in some sort of education. I just have my own experience to go off of. And I start finding these places and I realize like there is something that's going on on these journeys. And it's like, it's like dream walking because when I was driving, I was able to tap into a, a state of consciousness that I think. People who are athletic or maybe even martial arts, like yoga, uh, different breathing techniques, like people can tap into this type of consciousness aside from driving. But every, for the most part, like many people can relate to driving, right? Not everybody drives, I understand that, but many people can relate to that feeling, even riding a bike too. It's sort of like your body takes over and your mind is allowed to wander. And this is like a dream walking. And what I want to provide for people with this book is some tips and some tricks, maybe some clues to begin the process themselves of dreamwalking and how to actually go about planning a day from this dreaming state of consciousness. So instead of being so logical about things like, well, I'm going to be hungry at this point, so I want to pack this. And like any time I've ever tried to plan for something, it's not worked out and I think other people can probably relate to that like that idea of like oh, I tried to plan and it just didn't work out the way I thought it would and maybe some people have mastered uh, the art of like following through with plans but I, I think there's a sort of fun in dealing with what happens right This is just sort of like hit bump in the road and you got to you know figure it out from there so that's really what the scene edition one is going to be about it's going to be about uh, how to Gain the awareness and attune your focus to, you know, what's really important as opposed to the mundanity of your life. Um, set your t- intention, designate a time so that your family or your obligations aren't going to get in the way. I, I know people with kids might not be able to do this. If you're, if you're lucky, you can, you know, let the kids stay with the, you know, parents for a day or something or your relatives that you trust, Whatever. Um, but this is something is best spent alone or with your loved one, like your, you know, your significant other, yeah. and you want to figure out a way that's comfortable to impose randomness. So this app knots was popular for a while. Mm-hmm. I never had any success with it. I couldn't figure out how the app worked. Maybe I'm just, you know, a Luddite <laughs> or something, but it, I, not for me. I think people could use that app in this sort of way and I think that's what the app was made for, but I found that you can use dice, you can use a coin, you can use really anything to provoke randomness in your decision making and like for instance if you're coming on a road and you have several options uh have a dice in a cup and roll the dice and just designate one fork in the road odds. And the other one evens roll that dice in the cup. So you're not like looking all over your car for the dice and then just say, okay, we got odds. We're going to take a left. And that's where you go and you see where you end up and you you're aware of the signs, the things that are on the road, maybe historical markers. Those are something that I always look out for to tell you about like the history of the place. And then really the fun is afterwards. When you get home and you're like, okay, why did I go there? What brought me out to that place? And you start looking into the history and you're like, oh, wow, there used to be like this weird factory over there. Now it's shut down. And in the 1700s, people were doing this. And you start to put piece the story of your backyard together. And then the next time you go out, now you have sort of idea of what was there And maybe you go back to there and you find something new. Maybe you go to an entirely new, different place. I mean, it's literally endless possibilities. I think people have trouble with getting in the right mind state to be able to find this stuff. And it's not difficult. You know, people probably do it by accident more often than not. And maybe someone will get this book and be like, oh, I already knew this. Um, But not only are are you going to get kind of primed to go on your own journeys, but I want to also include different symbols and things that I've found in the natural world. And maybe these symbols might not mean the same for you. And especially if you don't live in the same place as me, because they're like plants, animals, minerals, those are all very specific to certain places. But these things come to us on our journeys as symbols, as omens. And, And you'll see a bird that's significant, or you'll encounter an animal running across the road that's significant. I mean, two weeks ago, Tara and I saw a bobcat crossing the road. And then this week, you know, we ended up on Wildcat Island in the Susquehanna River. I don't think that that's a coincidence. If I hadn't found out that that was called Wildcat Island, I would have never known. I had to look at the map, right? So it's kind of like, you know, a mix of different skills and it's meant to be fun. And it's meant to give people a sort of an answer to, Like the weirdness of life in the past two years, like you can't you can't like go to Six Flags and experience freedom the way you could in 2015. Like going to a roller coaster or amusement park might have been fun. But for me now, like I don't want to do anything that has to do with other people. I don't want to see anyone wearing a mask. I want to get out into nature and do fun stuff. And I think this is a great way. To do that, and you don't have to go into a state park or even a national park. You could just drive around, man, and find a place. I mean, there's so many little pockets of wilderness in your own town or or in your county, and and places with history too. I mean, even if it's not like a spectacular vista or something, like maybe something really strange went down in this area. I saw a sign while Mike, Tara, and I were driving to those Serpentine uh, Serpentine Barrens that said something about a kidnapping a woman named Mary Parker was kidnapped and this was part of the sort of anti-slave movement. They got a big sign on the side of the road. Oh, the 1850s, Mary Parker was kidnapped here, you know, and it's things like that, that you just come across and you take them into consideration. And then in hindsight, you kind of put a story together, you know, and see what happens. This this is a lot like what Michael Wan talks about too. I got to give him credit because he is a big inspiration, of course, uh, given that, we went down and hung out with him this past weekend and, uh, and I do a podcast with him. So yeah, he's a, he's a huge inspiration for me.
0: Man, I love that. You're 100% spot on. See, I, I only do road trips. I'll never fly again. Um, I don't want to do anything but be in control. I love driving. Um, <laughs> I don't even really like being a passenger that much. I will if I have to, but I really love driving. I'm I love driving you. across country. And there is this this like mystical experience, and so many synchronicities happen on the road with animals and trees and road signs and just – Nature, the beauty of it. It's its like uh, it is a very spiritual experience for me taking a road trip and doing things like that. I love the idea of doing that. And that's one of the, the reasons why I moved out to where I do because, oh man, there's so many places to explore out here in the Rockies. We live about a mile from the foothills. There's like little abandoned ghost towns and old abandoned mines and just the crazy roads. If I did the thing with the dice and the roads, I don't know if I can do that all the time. I have a fear of heights, and there's some – there's some fucking crazy roads out here with no railing that are going up to you know fourteen thousand feet or higher. So uh, you get a little white knuckle driving in there if you do that, and, which I've done yeah. before, man, and it's it's pretty fucking terrifying. But uh, yeah, that's a great idea, man. I, I love that, and and you're absolutely right. Uh, not making any concrete plans and just going is the best i do mm. that All i still that do that every time when i have a day off from from not doing any podcast or working anything i'll go head out to the foothills and just be like oh, where is this road gonna take me and you know mm. if i end up on a cliffside almost falling off i'll be like yeah look at this but you know it's always an adventure you know absolutely right <laughs> yeah
1: Well, at your own risk, definitely journey at your own risk. You know, I I mean, here on the East coast, we don't have perilous cliff faces as much as you probably do out there. So I hadn't taken that into account, uh, at all, but yeah, my car is like totally not great on Hills. So uh, yeah i just avoid that but yeah at your own comfort level you know you don't have to hit uh the dice at every fork in the road but i think it's a good way to like step out of your normal decision making habits and that's when like you said synchronicity happens like when you go on a road trip that's not a normal habit i mean truck drivers and people who do logistics for work maybe they feel a little more routine about it but those folks are usually driving on the interstate anyways you know like real road tripping happens on the back roads happens on the country roads happens when the roads that cut through forests and go by river gorges, like get off of the freaking route, U S route one, get off of route 66. Like don't, you know, unless, you know, that's your only option. Again, I'm not that familiar with the West. So you might have a different situation out there, but my advice is to to try to be as remote as possible, but also, you know, don't get yourself too lost, you know? You don't want to get stranded.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, I love it. And what is this, uh, you have a title for this project?
1: Yeah, so it's it's the same title that I've had for, I mean, really, it's what I do on the Patreon is talk about this kind of stuff. It's the Synchro Mystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now. So All I right. sort of acronym, the acronym for that is SEEN, S-E-E-N, three E's. Uh, so this is going to be edition one. Um, my girlfriend and I are both working on this. And hopefully as, as this journey grows and progresses, we'll have more information to share. And there'll be an edition two and edition three. And it could be like a, like a magazine or something uh, or, or like a little small book.
0: Hell yeah, man. I love it. We went from skull and bones to road trip talk. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we do. It's great. Uh, Before you head out, Mark, uh, let everyone know where they can find your stuff. That was fantastic.
1: Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, always a pleasure being here on Forbidden Knowledge News. Chris Matthew, I appreciate you giving me an invite, and I wish you the best of luck on your journey. Um, And I hope you come out to Skull and Bones. Definitely let me know. I'll give you a little tour. Definitely. I'll definitely give you a tour. So if folks are interested in that and maybe even getting a tour themselves, uh, just stay in touch with me on my family thinks I'm crazy.com. That's where you'll find everything I do. You can just scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. Everything's right on that front page. Uh, even the show I do with Michael Wan can be found there. Um, but that show has a different RSS feed. So if you're a podcast listener, which I know you are, cause you're here um, check out Susquehanna Alchemy. Type that in on your podcast player and find the show that I do with Michael Wan. We got a couple in-person interviews. I took my mixer out of the studio, put it in the field, and I interviewed Mike in person. I interviewed some of his characters that are in that part of the world. Uh, So yeah, those episodes will be coming out this week.
0: I love it, man. Always an awesome conversation and we'll definitely do it again soon.
1: Thank you, brother.
0: All right, until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. See you all then.